0: Well, good morning, good morning. I'd like to welcome you into crossroads if you're uh, visiting with us if you're joining us online if you're uh, here as a regular we're glad that you're here with us uh, today we're about to wrap up uh, our series awkward next week we're going to start a new teaching series and uh, kind of ironic because uh, Ben's going to come out and do communion here in just a little bit and uh, we didn't talk uh, talk about this ahead of time but the, the scripture he's using is actually our theme verse for the next series. So next week we're starting a new series called Be Still. And it's all about Sabbath. It's all about rest. We're going to talk about that for 4 weeks on how we can rest in God and find rest in him and why that's important and why we should do that. But today we're going to wrap up this series awkward that we've been in the past few weeks. Uh, if you recall we've looked uh, the past couple of weeks at how uh, we we try to plant and water seeds. We talked about how difficult it can be at times to share our faith, but sharing faith can be a lot like gardening. And that sometimes we think we've got to do all the work, but sometimes our job is just to plant the seed or just to water the seed or help somebody else water the seed. And all the seeds are different. And what really matters is that we are doing our part, that we're working and trying to find our part and work with that. Last week, we talked about being relevant or being real and sharing your story. And being authentic in sharing your story by living it out uh, the, the way that, that God laid it out for you to live. Today, what we're going to do is, is kind of wrap a bow on this and talk about how to be ready because it's going the, the world's going to throw us some curveballs from time to time, and sharing your faith doesn't always guarantee success. A lot of times, I think that fear of failure keeps us from actually sharing our faith. Uh, I've noticed when I look around the church, I think there's two main reasons why a lot of times as Christians we don't share the gospel with other people. We don't share our faith with others. And I think those two reasons are simple. One is I think we're afraid we might offend somebody. Now, I don't mean, you know, this hypersensitivity that's kind of going on in culture today where people are very easily offended. I don't mean that. I mean that we're going to present the gospel to somebody and basically say, you know, we we want you to come get away from sin and come live for Jesus, and we're going to come off as just super judgmental. You know, like we're telling them straight up, hey, everything about your life is terrible, so come come enjoy mine instead. And it's a little bit of a put-off, and I think it's a mental block for ourselves that we don't want to do that, we're afraid that we might do that. But I think the other reason, and maybe the bigger reason why we don't often share our faith with others is simply, we don't feel qualified, too often we don't feel like we have all the right words or we don't feel like we have the right timing or, or we're afraid that we're not going to be able to answer questions. Or, or maybe if we do answer a question, the person we're talking to is more skeptical and they spin something back on us that makes it sound like our words are contradictory and then we don't have an answer for that. And we're afraid we're going to look bad and make all, all Christianity look bad and God look bad. And so it's just easier to not do that whatsoever. And I think sometimes the easiest thing that we do is we just simply share a Facebook post because, you know, I'm not going to hear somebody say anything back to me on that one. And if they give me a a comment that I don't like, I can just delete it or hide it so that nobody else has to see it. But when I I think about that second reason about, you know, not feeling qualified, I always think back to the old Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley. Anybody remember uh, (laughs) SNL from back in the early 90s? Stuart Smalley was this this self-proclaimed self-help guru. And basically, Stuart Smalley was the one that needed to be going to all of these, these affirmations. There was a segment every week called Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. And he had been through every type of self-help or, or get-help type of program there was. Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Depression Anonymous, all of the different anonymous types of groups, all the 12-step programs And that qualified him to help others be more confident in their life. And the irony of the the character was, he always interviewed whoever was hosting the show that week, playing themselves. So this is already a famous movie star or famous athlete. And he's interviewing them, explaining to them why they should be more confident in life. And one of the best examples, it's actually I think one of the best SNL skits ever, was when he had Michael Jordan on there. This is Michael Jordan like in 1992 at his prime, at the peak of his world fame. He's winning championships, he's winning gold medals, leading the Dream Team. And Stewart's character has no idea who he is. You know, and in keeping with the anonymous theme, he's just simply Michael J. And explaining to him why he should be more confident in himself, why he should go for it on occasion, And at the end of each session, he would make them look into a mirror and repeat these words I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) And the skits were hilarious, but I think that little phrase there sometimes, as cheesy and as corny as it is, is actually what we need to remind ourselves when it comes to sharing our faith that yes, we are good enough, we are smart enough, and yes, people do like us. Doesn't mean you've got to be an expert doesn't mean that you've got to be the most well-liked person on the planet. doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. It just means you've got a story to tell. And that we need to learn how not just to share that story, but that it's okay to share that story. What I want to talk about today just are simply three thoughts to keep in mind as we do that. And as we do this, remember back to what we said the last two weeks. Not every single plant that you plant is planted the same. I didn't really intend to say that that way. It came out that way. Not every plant that you plant is planted the same way. (laughs) Okay, every seed has to be planted at a different depth or different distances apart from each other. They're on different watering schedules. They're on, some need more sunlight than others. Some need hardly any sunlight. Some take longer to grow than others. Some grow very fast. Some produce just a little bit of fruit. Some produce a lot of fruit. How many of you have ever grown cucumbers in a garden? And you look one day and they're this big, you're like, I'll wait till tomorrow. And then tomorrow it's like the size of a house, you know? Some do that. Some people grow that fast. Some take forever to grow. Keep this in mind because when it comes to sharing your faith, there's no carbon copy way to do this. Okay? You can have a game plan, yes, but there's no carbon copy way. And understand, too, we're talking about this in a three week teaching series. There's semester long classes at Bible college on this, there's entire books written on evangelism and on sharing your faith. So, this is just simply some thoughts to keep in mind as you do step out and share your faith. The first is this, before you start, expect some challenges. I I know just from personal experience and and from, from watching and being a part of the church my whole life, sharing your faith does not guarantee success. Jesus was very well aware of this, and he prepared us for this. Jesus, when we get into the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 11 and 12, he's really just challenging and laying stuff out there, And it kind of upsets the religious leaders. Jesus was pretty good at upsetting those guys. And so they had basically already walked away and pushed him away and and are vilifying him now. And they're trying to get the people to do the same. And Jesus, like he always does, uses this as a teaching opportunity. In chapter 13, he gives a very famous parable. When he says, a farmer went out to sow his, uh, his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Now we know this is the parable of the four soils. And Jesus is talking about people. That's what he's referring to when he mentions soil. He's talking about different types of people here. Know this about Jesus. When Jesus gave a parable, or he gave a lesson, it was one of two things. It was an object lesson where he was standing right beside something as he talked about it, and he could point at it and say, yeah, this this is what I'm talking about, quite literally uh, right here. Or he used an example of something that was a part of everyday life for them that they would have understood. This is maybe a little bit of both, depending where he's at when he gives this, this lesson. Those of you who went to Israel this past year, we saw rocky soil looks like. That's what most of their basic soil is. And back then they didn't have the equipment to dig all that stuff out. They had to do it by hand. So a lot of seed they would throw would fall right among rocks or right among, you know, kind of these craggly areas full of weeds and full of thorns. They had to cultivate good soil sometimes. But we get this, even if you're not a gardener, I think it's easy to understand where some of this comes from. But Jesus very quickly interpreted the parable right out for them to understand in plain letters or plain words. He said in verse 19, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. In other words, it's thrown on hard ground. It's thrown on a a sidewalk. That seed's not going to grow. A bird might come eat it. The wind might blow it away. It's got nothing to, to take root in. He goes on to say, "The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once, or and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away quickly." This is kind of implying that that seed is, is sown, but the shallow doesn't. Uh, the, the soil is very shallow; it can't go very far, so the roots can't go down. They they kind of go out. And it doesn't take much uh, of, of the climate, much of the culture around there to get rid of this plant. The seed falling among the thorns refers to somebody who hears the word, but worry uh, the worries of his life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. In other words, there's just too much stuff going on around there for this to grow. But the seed falling on good soil refers to somebody who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus is basically saying, you've got a one in four shot. Like he's saying as a church, you you, you might have a 25% success rate. Now, I know we don't like to think about the church sometimes as a business or an organization, uh, but, you know, as, as a staff, sometimes we do have to think about that. And we think about things that are going to work, and we want to be good stewards of, of the tithes that you all give and good stewards of the investment financially that you all make. And when you see this and you think about, well, as a business plan, you got a 25% chance of success. Who's signing up for that? Like, some of you have run businesses in the past, we don't like that. And I, can't, I can think of one other industry in the world where 25% success is okay, and that's Major League Baseball. If you get on base 25% of the time, you get a hit 25% of the time, you're going to stay in the lineup. If you can do it one-third of the time, you're in the Hall of Fame. That's it. You know, if a, if a quarterback can't hit 25% of his passes, he's getting benched. If an airline pilot can't land the plane 25% of the time, <laughs> he's flying at most twice. Okay, just do the math, okay? But Jesus is saying one out of four people are going to be receptive to the word. I have a friend from back home who's a rancher and a farmer and has for years. He runs a, a cattle ranch for a, a pretty wealthy businessman back home. And um, I asked him one time, I said, George, um, kind of, we, were, we were talking about this parable years ago. And I said, imagine you had a 25% success rate in what you do. The crops you plant, the livestock you grow. If you had a 25% success rate, what would that look like? And he said, I can sum it up in one word. It would be devastating. He said, all the time, all the effort, all the energy, all the resources that have gone into this, if only one out of every four cows is able to go to the market, one out of every four crops is able to be harvested, he goes, it would be an utter failure. And he goes, I would feel like a failure. I would be discouraging. It would be humiliating. It would be disheartening for me as a man, as a, as a leader of this ranch, as, as a husband trying to lead his family. And I think Jesus understood that we would share some of those same emotions and reactions when it comes to sharing our faith. Nobody likes to get rejected, especially 75% of the time. Especially 75% of the time, we don't like rejection. It's disheartening at times. But Jesus is telling you this is what's going to happen. He says there's four types of people out there in the world, and you're going to encounter all of them. He says there's those whose hearts are hard. They're the ones who hear the gospel and they might even believe in Jesus. They might even come to church some, but they just don't care enough to make it a part of their lives. So they don't they don't allow it to take root. Hard ground doesn't allow seed to take root. He says there's those who heart, whose hearts are shallow. They hear the gospel and they might even accept Jesus and they might even be sincere about trying to follow him, but they don't allow the, the, the gospel to really take root And I think one of the things that can cause shallowness is isolation. I think those who don't allow themselves to get fully invested around other people, sometimes that can be hard to allow that to really take root. When when I was in Oregon, our church was called Redwood Christian Church. And I was fascinated by how redwoods work, the the actual tree. We went down to Redwood National Park several times. love that place. If you've never been there, it's just like 300-foot trees and they're everywhere. Like, you, you can't even see through them because there, there's so many. But I read, for as tall of a tree as that is, the root system is extremely shallow. Usually the roots go down as, almost as deep as a tree grows up. This one, it doesn't. They go out. But what makes redwoods work is they root together. All the trees, the roots intert- intertangle and, and intertwine. And so if one tree is going to fall, they all have to fall. That's what keeps them upright and why they only come down if they get cut down unless they rot out. I think that can apply to us. Isolation can lead to shallowness in our, our own personal soil. He says there's those whose hearts are crowded. We just have way too much going on. Maybe that's... Keeping up with your kids, with sports schedules, or school, getting ready to start back, or, or, or the busyness that comes from everyday life with work, or, or whatever it may be. Maybe you have to travel all the time, and you've just got so much going on, or maybe it's all internal. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's worrying about finances, or it's a health issue. It's all these different things that come in, and just like weeds do, they choke out the good stuff. They choke out what you actually want to grow because they consume all the resources. They consume all the sunlight and all the water that comes in there. If you allow everything else in life to come in and consume your attention and your effort and energy, then God and church and the word just become something else to do rather than being the focal point of what you're called to do. But that fourth group, he says, These are the ones whose hearts are fertile and receptive. They're the ones that are eager to hear the word, and the, root, the, the word takes root in them, and it grows. Now, when you look at this list, those first three, it's easy to look at those and say, okay, well, there's those three, and then there's the fourth. Keep in mind, those first three can become that fourth. But sometimes it takes a little more time and a little more effort and a few more people watering, and it takes patience. But those are the four types of people we're going to come across, and Jesus understood this. See, I think it's just the same idea as with gardening. When you've got people, especially whose hearts are hard or shallow, often I think when we decide that we're going to try and share our faith with somebody else, we have a plan. You have an idea what you want to do. Just like you have a plan when it comes to gardening. You know when you're going to put certain things in the ground. You know how far apart you're going to do them. You've got a plan. But here's the thing with plans. They're great until they don't work. Then what do you do? The second thing you've got to be is you've got to be adaptable, too. Have a plan, but be adaptable. Because the same plan that works for gardening in Texas may not work in Kansas, or it may not work in California. And the same thing applies here. I I love talking to other church leaders to get ideas on things we can do, and I love it when they say, just so you know, this works for us here. It may not work for you there, because that's their soil. That's their climate. That's their conditions. So I have to learn, can it work here, or do I need to adapt it to work here, or will it never work here? You have to kind of think through those things, and the same applies with different types of people that you're talking to. But because you have to plan and you have to be adaptable, you also have to be patient. Sometimes, you guys know this, it takes a long, long time to grow fruit. I know that uh, (laughs) my... uh, my, my dad had, had my kids back with him back in the spring, and Titus wanted to plant corn, so they planted corn next to their shed. And uh, so when he came back, like a week later, he wanted to see his corn, and my dad went to the store and just bought some ears of corn, you know, to show him. <laughs> and he was so excited, Dad, look at my corn, you know, and, and uh, so he, was, he was like, good job, buddy, good job, dude. Like, you, you really worked that corn well. I think he sprayed it with water one time. But how often do we do that in real life? We spray something a couple of times and we expect it to grow. Even with miracle Grow and even with all the fertilizer, it takes time. Patience is required. And here's the thing you have to realize too. It also takes not getting discouraged when things don't work out the way you want them to work out. But keep at it. Because one of the things I love more than anything when it comes to the church is seeing somebody who has been working on someone for years just saying little things to them here and there, not beating them over the head with the Bible, but just watering here and there, sprinkling on some miracle grow here and there, helping them along. And years later, they decide to come to Jesus. They decide to come and check it out. Be patient. Don't get discouraged. You will have challenges. Here's the second bit of advice. second thing to remember is that we need to learn the importance of stories. Everybody has a story to tell. And as we talked about last week, there's value in learning how to tell your story and being authentic in it. But I think when it comes to this, even more important than telling your story is learning to listen to the stories of others. It sounds easy. We like to share stories. We like to have conversations. But sometimes we have to remember that listening requires listening. Because too often, if you're like me especially, I can get very guilty of interrupting somebody's story to compare it to mine as a way of trying to relate with somebody. That's what I'm trying to do is relate a little bit more by saying, you know what? I had something very similar happen to me one time. And Before you know it, I've taken over and I've hijacked the story. And sometimes it becomes a battle of comparison. Sometimes it just becomes, a, I really want to share my part too. But sometimes we have to remember to just be quiet. James says in James 1 that everybody should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, I'll be honest, I'm pulling this verse just a bit out of context here because he's talking about anger. That's where he's going with all this. But the, the, the idea still applies. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. I think that could apply to more than just anger, it could apply to almost everything that we do. Maybe you've heard the old cliche God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. So you listen twice as much as you talk. Listening to somebody else's story, that's what it requires, it requires being quiet and listening, and not trying to control the conversation. I think it also requires us not getting upset at what they say, even if they say something that sounds insulting to our faith, because maybe that's their way of trying to understand our faith or trying to understand a gospel that may not make sense to somebody that's from a skeptical world. Maybe they just need to voice or vent what they feel, and we just need to listen. And then we can go unload or voice or vent on one of our brothers or sisters in the room who can handle it. Rather than than lashing back out. Don't take that as an opportunity to get into an argument or a debate with somebody. Because I don't know about you, I don't think I've ever seen anybody get argued into Christ. Or get argued into baptism or argued into conversion. We, We don't operate that way. No, listen. And listen with patience and humility. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, the words of Peter, always be prepared to give an answer to to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Don't be arrogant in your faith. Don't be aggressive with other people. Don't be overly assertive with them. Don't be impatient with them. But also too, we have to understand that you can't listen to their stories if you're not spending time with them. Growing up, my mom used to not let me hang out with kids that weren't Christian kids, weren't church kids. She was always afraid, I think, that they were going to be a bad influence on me. And that's possibly true. I mean, that could have happened. We, we see this a lot. And even with my kids today, I, uh, we don't know the backgrounds of all of their friends. Some are Christian, some are not. But we, we just keep an eye on this. But, you know, we we talked about this, and I know there's a big, you know, all-around culture right now, all around the area. It's like, well, what do we do with our kids? Do we take them out of public school and put them in Christian school? My thought is, man, if we take all of our kids out of public school, who's going to be there in public school to be the good influence? To be the one to bring Christ to them? Because it's certainly not coming from the system. It's certainly not coming from that. And I think we've got to remember, sometimes that's what we need to be. Is rather than than worrying that that we're going to get negatively influenced by society, we go be the influencer of society. We go be the one to change society. Now hear me out on this because if you're new to the faith and you've got a a, a particular sin or lifestyle that you've struggled with, that you've just kind of gotten away from, don't rush right back to that same group to, to try to reach them because you may not be there yet where you can not fall prey to that same temptation. Don't rush back into something like that. But if it's something you overcame a long time ago in your past, then that's a group you can relate to and reach with accountability to make sure you don't get back into that. But get involved with people outside the church. That's the only way you're going to reach them. The only way you're going to be able to hear their story and relate to them is to get to know them. In the Old Testament, God gave instructions to the Israelites on how to build a tabernacle. Read about this back in in Deuteronomy and 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 how as the Israelites moved, they had this tabernacle that they would take with them, basically a huge tent, and they would set it up and the tabernacle, which is the Hebrew word is Mishkan, it literally translates to dwelling place. This is where God would come to dwell with his people. He would come down in spirit and dwell with them. And that's how the Israelites interacted with him. You jump to the New Testament and we see something similar. The Gospel of John, Jesus or John John starts off his gospel this way saying in the beginning was the word that's Jesus talking about the very essence of life in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And you jump a few verses later it says and the word became flesh and did what made his dwelling among us. Just put that all together. Jesus came to tabernacle with us, to mishkan with us. What does that mean? It means that God wanted to reach us, and in order to reach us, he became like one of us so that he could relate to us so that he could reach us. Now, just think this for a second. If God did that with us, why should we not do that with others? I'm not saying go out into the world and act like the world. I'm not saying you want to reach people at a bar, go get drunk with them. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying maybe it's okay to go hang out with them if that's not a struggle or a temptation for you. Be with them. Reach them. Listen to their story. Because when you do that, the more you spend time with them, the more you'll understand them and can relate to them. When we were in Arizona, the church we were at had a sports league and uh, had football and soccer and basketball for all different age groups. And uh, one of the guys that ran that asked me if I'd be interested in helping and um, said, sure. And I made the mistake that you never make to a pastor. I told him, just put me where you need me. Just so you know, if you say that, we will. Okay? So guess who coached 6th and 7th grade boys the next year? Guess who got co- stuck coaching an age group that he had no idea how to relate to? God wired me in a few different ways. Children was not one of them. I'm not even good with my own children, okay? Much less somebody else's. In fact, I'll always tell Matt, if if he's asking me, you know, we're having some event, hey, would you mind helping? I'm like, do you want those kids to not want to come back? Because if so, then I'll come do that. You know, if that's one, you're like, hey, you know, could you, yeah, I'll be the one, sure. So sixth and seventh grade boys, we walk out for the first practice. I'd coach high school girls, a little different than sixth and seventh grade boys. And we walk out there and I have no idea how to relate to these kids. I have no idea what words they understand. My kids weren't that old yet. Elsie was four You know, she was still a bit behind this age group. So it was rough the first few weeks. You know what? As the season went on, got to understand them a little bit better. Got to relate to them a little bit better. I knew how to talk to them a little bit better. We played better as a team because I could communicate with them, and I could hear what they were saying back to me. That same applies when we get into the world and around people who don't know Jesus. If you never spend time with people who aren't just like you, you'll never learn how to reach somebody who's not just like you. And guess how many people are just like you? Not very many. Maybe none. You have to learn to contextualize your approach with different people. And that means you pay attention to them so that you can learn how to reach them. I think the Apostle Paul was so good at this. Because when we see Paul throughout the New Testament, what do we see him do? We see him talk to Jewish people and use the Old Testament because that's what they knew. We see him talk to Gentile people and not really use the the Old Testament because they didn't know that. We see Paul, in fact, talk with uh, with people in, in Athens who were scholars, that were academics, that were philosophers, and what does he do? He quotes poetry to them. He quotes their philosophers to them so that they will understand more about Jesus. Learn to contextualize your approach. Learn to, to know what you need to do to reach who it is you're talking to. Paul described it like this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Anybody tracking so far? To the weak, I became weak to win the weak, and here he goes, I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. You're like, well, wait a minute, Paul. If you're becoming all things to all people so that by all things possible, wouldn't you want to save all? He, even Paul knows. He's not going to get everybody. You just can't get everybody. But what Paul's saying here is, I'm willing to be whoever I need to be so I can reach whoever is willing to listen to what I have to say. So expect challenges. They're going to come your way. Learn the value of stories because they are so important in what we do. But here's the third bit of advice. You ultimately have to tell people what God has done for them. And you can do this by telling people what God has done for you. I think that often what we we fail to understand is that if you want to present Jesus To a world that knows nothing about him and doesn't think they need him, you have to show why he is a better alternative to what society has to offer. If you have ever been in sales or if you've ever been in in any kind of marketing, you understand how it works. The job is to show people why they can't live without your product. You might remember back to some of the infomercials that ran when I was a kid back in the 90s. Those infomercials that were so over the top and cheesy, but they showed you why you had to have that product because... Things would go terribly wrong if you didn't. One of my favorite ones was uh, for this headset that when when wireless phones first became a thing, not cell phones, kids, wireless phones, like landline with no line, right? Those first became a thing. It was a headset that strapped onto that and held the phone to your face. And to show why you needed this, they showed a woman doing dishes, holding her phone and dropped it in the sink because we all do that, right? Right? We all talk on the phone while we're doing dishes. But it's like, if you don't get this, you will ruin your phone in the sink. But that's the whole point behind marketing. Show why you need this product. Same applies with Jesus. We've got to show people why they need him and why he's a better alternative to what culture has to offer. And I think sometimes this is where we get stuck. This is where we don't know what to do. Can I say, I think it's as simple as, as cracking open the book of Romans and walking through it and showing people what's inside. I've got five things. These are going to be quick, but I can, I can fill you in on these later if you miss a, miss a blank here. Show them what's in Romans 3. And tell them that everybody has sinned, but that God took care of it for us. Show him that. Show him where he says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and make it clear, nobody's free from that. We've all sinned, but we're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That we're set free from the penalty of sin and we're set free from the bondage of slavery Show them Romans 5 where it tells about the price God paid for your sin. That when he, he paid that and set you free, show them what that was. What that looks like. Where it says in verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've always said this is one of the verses in the Bible that for me is one of the hardest to believe. Because this is not the way we're wired. When you get your act together, I'll, I'll forgive you. That's when my grace will kick in. That's how we often think, right? But God flipped that on its head while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Show them Romans 6 where it tells us about the penalty of sin. But that God removed it from us. That he didn't pin that on us. Where he says in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's heavy. But he says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Show them Romans 10 where it tells us how to respond to God's love. This great gift of grace that is from the love of God and and through the love of God and is the love of God where he says in verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Been a period on that. He says, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And then a few verses later, what does he say? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Will be saved. Show them Romans 12, where it tells us how to live and grow as a follower of Jesus. Where he says in verse 1, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now you think about what all this shows us to do here. Does that make it automatic? No. But it gives us something we can walk through. That Whatever the world has to offer, Jesus is better. Whatever society has to offer, God is better. And it's our job to show that. It's our job to tell people that. We think that if we we strike out once that we're just gonna keep striking out and maybe you will, maybe your conversion rate will be way less than 25%. But guess what? This isn't a baseball team and you're not gonna get benched if you're batting under 200. This isn't a football team and you're gonna get benched if you can't complete a pass for the entire first quarter. Keep at it. You're not gonna lose the job because you're not bringing everybody you know to Christ. But maybe, just maybe you will. Because maybe, just maybe, you'll say something that's exactly what somebody needs to hear exactly when they need to hear it. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter has preached this incredible sermon after the Holy Spirit has shown up. And I'm just going to read this passage. This is a longer passage. I'm just going to read it to you. But in Acts chapter 2, as Peter's preaching this sermon, here's where he ultimately ties this up. Starting in verse 26 or I'm sorry, starting in verse verse 29, he says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out for you what you now see and hear. And jump down a few verses, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? and peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit the promises for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the lord will call or for for all whom the lord our god will call with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves from this corrupt generation and those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3000 were were added to their number that day Does that mean you're going to go out and share something and just masses are going to come to Jesus? Probably not. But maybe, just maybe, when you do share something, it's what they need to hear when they need to hear it. Maybe it's just a little bit more watering on somebody else's plant. That's okay. Or maybe you're giving them that final bit of watering that they've been waiting for. And maybe, just maybe, they'll respond the way they responded to Peter when it says they what they do, they heard it, They believed it, they repented, and they were baptized. Our job as a church is to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded to us. We're called to go and seek and save the lost. We're called to go and be his witnesses. We can't do that unless we're willing to go and be his witnesses. Here's your takeaway today. Go share the good news. I don't, don't have a game plan for you in terms of take this verse and take this one right there to them. No, just go share the good news with somebody. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Be gentle. Be patient. Be understanding. But share the good news with those around you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you give us a command that isn't always easy but it's something we can grow towards. God, we're grateful for your son who who gave us this instruction and then showed us how to live it out. And for examples that followed him, like Paul and Peter and John and all these, these apostles that showed us how to do this. So God, help us as we spread your word, as we spread your gospel, help us to find those opportunities to be courageous when we have them, to listen to you and follow your leading as we do this. To not think that we have to have it all figured out, but that we would, that we would just be able to to trust in you, and to make your name famous in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.
1: When I was in college, um, I would have been about twenty-one at the time. I joined what was called the camp team. I went to a Christian school, and the camp team's job was is basically the Christian camps that were happening throughout the probably a seven-state area. We would go to one of those and be helps uh, just do typical counselor-type stuff throughout that week. I really enjoyed that, but um, we did junior high and high school, and I remember there was like three subsequent weeks where it was junior high kids that we were ministering to, and it was your typical 100 degrees summer, and the last one that we had been at was called Boondocker, which was a camp that was over by Topeka. I think Kerwin Lake was the name it was at. I don't recall for sure, but we were sleeping in tents that whole week with a bunch of junior high kids, and we were exhausted, just absolutely more tired than you could even begin to imagine. And so the next week, we had a camp up in Wisconsin. And so when I got up to Wisconsin, the dean sat us down and said, hey, I know what you guys have been going through. He sat all the camp, all the, uh, camp teams down. It's been a long summer for you, and I need your absolute best. But I know for me to get your absolute best, you guys got to have some downtime. So when we get into rec time in the afternoons, I've got those covered. That's your time to go rest. So he allowed us to go back to the bunks and just chill. It was absolutely amazing. And he's right. It got the absolute best out of us because we were rested and ready to go when those evenings came around to love on those students as best as we could. It was meaningful to me. That was the kind of invitation I like. You know, sometimes I get invitations that are more, more, more of an obligation than fun. You know, like if you get somebody that's like a fringe wedding now, it's an obligation that you have to kill a Saturday to go to their wedding, right? oh man, I'm exhausted already. I'm just tired. But Jesus offers us a different kind of invitation. And it's Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary. There's your invitation and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus knows you better than you know you and me. And he knows that every one of us need points of rest that we can be in our absolute best. Today is a day of rest. So as we take communion today, I just want to take a moment to remember and thank our Lord for recognizing to get the best out of us. He has offered us this day of Sabbath to be able to rest I hope that's an inspiring thought for you today as we take communion together. Go ahead. Mm